credit scores, down payments, interest rates. Car buying can be a numbers game, but you don't have to be a math expert to get the keys to your dream car. Just use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. Crunch your numbers and get personalized results so you know exactly how much you'll pay each month for your car. It's like having a magic wand for your wallet. Presto! The car you've been wanting is now within reach. So hit the road and leave your calculator at home. Auto Trader. It's been almost 3,000 years and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and Jerry's here too, and this is Stuff You Should Know. Was that a horse or a goat? Hey, take your pick, buddy. <laughs> well, the working title for this one is History of Veterinary Medicine, or When Did People Stop Only Caring About Horses and Cows When It Comes <laughs> to Animals? The answer to that question is pretty recently, actually. <laughs> And you know? when, yeah, and I should just say livestock. Sure, just to shorten word. that that eighteen word title to sixteen livestock, words. Livestock, <laughs> livestock's a great word, and then mast is also one of my favorite words for the kind of earthy hominess it has to it. What? Mast, the collection of edible nuts that like pigs and squirrels yeah live off of. Yeah, mast, acorns, chestnuts, all that stuff is under the umbrella that. of mast. Don't you? Isn't it like livestock? Livestock, mast, measuring things by the foot, wearing like a cloth hat. Yeah. Like it all just kind of has that same vibe going on, and I love it all. Yeah, because I can picture a, a stinker squirrel just like chewing and going, hey, you want to go get some uh, mast? <laughs> We're running low on mast. Let's get some more mast, guys. After this mast and the other mast, we've only got two masts left. All right. Uh, Livia did a great job because when I asked for an article – about veterinary medicine, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I was like, what I really want is like the history of veterinary medicine, not one of those old kind of uh, articles where it's like, to become a vet, you should, I mean, there's a little bit of that at the very end, but Mm -hmm. I found this endlessly fascinating to see where we were and where we are now. Yeah, it's kind of like the history of dentistry episode you dialed up a year or ago. Look at that. So, um, yeah, you have a thing with history of medical fields, apparently. I guess so. So we're talking about vets, specifically the history of veterinary medicine. And we don't exactly know when it starts. Our first unambiguous uh, evidence that people were caring medically for animals comes about 41-ish hundred years ago in the Mesopotamian city of Lagash, mm-hmm. uh, where somebody named Erlagaladina. Mm-hmm. Uh, was mentioned as somebody who was an expert in healing animals, I guess scrawled on a bathroom wall somewhere in Lagash. Sure. But (laughs) we presume that that people were caring for animals thousands of years before that because we domesticated animals thousands of years before that. And just by the very virtue of us depending on those animals, 
somebody along the way figured out it's kind of important to keep these animals healthy and happy, and we need to figure out tips and techniques for doing that. And that was really the birth of veterinary medicine. Yeah. I mean, your their lives depended on these this livestock. Livestock. Mast. <laughs> uh, and so, of course, they wanted to keep these things alive so they could uh, use them in all the ways that they were used. Uh, and, of course, we're talking about, at the time, like, very rudimentary stuff like, hey, what should we feed them? And then uh, let's watch. And are they thriving? So let's either <laughs> watch this. feed them more of that or less of this. So right. in other words, let's work on their diet. Let's see if we can get that right. Let's see what kind of like herbs and fruits and roots and things like that we could use to try and heal them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the actual word veterinarian, uh, which is an English term based on the Latin verb vahiri, V-E-H-E-R-I, which is Mm -hmm. to draw, as in like, you know, uh, drawing a horse or something like that. Like a horse drawing a wagon. Yeah. It was was to treat. (laughs) Because you could win uh, an art scholarship if you could draw that parrot, right? Horses were the one thing that I could draw because I had a book once that taught me how to draw horses. It's really So you start with three. Is that a book or a movie or something? I don't know. It sounds like something, doesn't it? Um, a Wilco so song? You, is that what it is? Okay. <laughs> no. So you start you start with a big circle, and then you make a slightly less big circle, yeah. a little to the left of that, mm-hmm. and then a little up and to the left above that slightly less big circle, you do a smaller circle, and then you've got the rump, the front, and the head of the horse, and you just start filling lines in from there. And yeah. believe me, Connect it the dots. works. <laughs> yeah, it really works really well. Can you still draw a horse? I haven't tried in a really long time, but will you probably. try and draw a horse and put that on your Instagram? I would. I Please, will. I will. By okay. Josh, age forty-six. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, and then look, you know, you can look back on that when you're fifty-six and have all those fond memories. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I was so terrible at drawing. Yumi can pull it out and say, "Look what you did when you were forty-six." Uh, So uh, we're going to get to the U.S., but all of this action right now in terms of caring for cattle and horses and sheep and things is in medieval Mm -hmm. or is in Europe. And in medieval Europe, um, you might, you know, have a status symbol animal like, hey, I'm a falconer or something. Check out this bad boy or look at these regal greyhounds. So they would care in that case, very specifically, would care for what we might think of as a pet but that was not the common thing, and pets, as far as veterinary care, didn't come around so much, much later. No, but this does support part of a long-standing tradition that exists still today, that the the well-off to the uber-wealthy mm-hmm. are responsible for funding veterinary practices. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And um, in, in Great Britain, in the United States— um, the the ideas were that if you were responsible for um, for putting shoes on a horse, if you were a farrier, mm-hmm. you also more often I think than putting shoes on a horseback, then you would carve their toenails, sure, or their hooves. I guess is another way to put it. Yeah, their toenails, if you want to get technical. <laughs> um, but the, there's a certain way you can carve them to make them faster, to make them more stable, to make sure they're not their feet aren't aching, that kind of thing, and that kind of evolved into the earliest, um, I guess, in the U.S. and Great Britain, 
practitioners of, of horse medical care. If, if you went to see the farrier, the, he could probably help you with your horse, especially if you needed your horse's junk cut off. Yeah, they, they would. Uh, that's one of the surgeries they would a farrier could perform for you. Uh, you could also go to a cow leech, um, which is just kind of what you think. It's someone who, uh, you know, someone who takes care of cows. I guess they would use leeching methods and things, but oh, yes. it was someone who specialized in dealing with your sick cow. And again, they were the farriers and the cow leeches did this stuff because they were just around them all the time. So it makes sense if you're shoeing a horse, you're just, you have more maybe an intuitive sense of how to help a horse. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, and so you would basically learn this as an apprentice, which means that some good ideas were passed along, some really bad ideas were passed along. There wasn't any book learning about caring for animals at the time. And there wasn't a lot of specialization outside of farriers. Um, And I guess aside from, I get the impression that cows were getting some side attention here. But for the most part, it was horse, horse, horse. Of course. That was like the driving force <laughs> yes, uh-huh. of, of the establishment of, of veterinary medicine as, yeah. a, as an actual specialist field. Yeah, big time. And uh, you might not be surprised or you may be surprised to learn that it sort of not quite lockstep, but it sort of progressed. It feels like just behind medicine on humans, like mm-hmm. as we started dissecting humans, they started dissecting horses, and it just sort of makes sense. It's like these are other living mammals, and if we learn how to study bones and muscles and organs of people, then we can certainly learn how to do that on this horse. Right. Uh, a sea change book came along in 1610 uh, by uh, – would that be Gervais or Gervaise? I'm going with Gervais. Okay, Gervais Markham called – That's a new hotel name, by the way. <laughs> Gervais Markham. Yeah. Oh, boy. I'd stay there. Um, and I love how, like, on the nose. <laughs> no, no, no. The the fake name you used to check oh. into a hotel, not the name of a hotel. That sounds what like a hotel chain. What to you during the January break? <laughs> that sounds like a hotel chain. Gervais Markham? It sounds more like a, a, a white heel um, law firm. Oh, uh, all right. Maybe Is right. that the right term, white heel? <laughs> I don't know. Well-heeled, Well-heeled. white White Something, collar, though. no, I can't remember. White hot, a white hot law firm. Yeah, <laughs> white hot law. <laughs> no, I get you now. No, that's a great hotel name to check in under Gervais Market. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, and this was back when book titles were more of a description of what's in the book rather than, right. and they still try and get to that. Like we learned that when we titled our own book, but mm-hmm. they were really on the nose back then. And this was called uh, Markham's Masterpiece, spelled P E E C E. Containing all knowledge belonging to smith, farrier, or horse leech, touching on curing all diseases in horses. And I'm not joking when I said this thing was a big deal. It was the go-to book for 200-plus years they were printing this thing. 200 years. Imagine if our book was printed for the next 200 years. This would essentially be like the horse-caring-for Bible is what it was. The problem is, is again, a lot of those bad ideas um, got put into this book, too, and spread, like using leeches for bloodletting, um, for things like purging, which I think is exactly what it sounds like. Making your horse um, vomit? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. 
using herbal remedies, some of which may or may not have worked. It's not like we're saying, like, nope, modern veterinary medicine is the only possible way to care for an animal. Like, I'm sure a lot of these folk remedies did actually work just from, you know, people trying them over and over again and finding this, this, this is pretty effective. Yeah. But there was also a lot of bunk in there, too. Yet, these books were good enough that they, for 200 years, they were used to care for horses. Right. Uh, I just we... want to make sure that we got that point across. <laughs> should we take a break or wait? Let's take a break, Chuck. I'm getting a little riled up. All right, let's take a break. Go settle down. Who hasn't heard names like Achilles or Odysseus, Cassandra, Medusa? But how much do you know about them from the ancient world? Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the podcast bringing the ancient sources to life. Greek myth and history is timeless, and unless you've been living under a rock, you have seen just how true that is today. But there is so much more to these characters and stories than what pop culture can do justice. I'm Liv Albert, the host of Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, and every week I bring you stories from the ancient world, both mythological and historical, to breathe new life into these thousands of years old stories. I'm also regularly joined by some of the most brilliant names in the field of archaeology and ancient history, authors of your favorite retellings from today, and everyone in between. Join me as I dive into the wild world of the ancient Greeks and their stories. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Okay, Chuck, you talked about a sea change. You want to talk about a real sea change? Yeah. I got one right here. There's a guy named Claude Borgelot. Borgelot. Yeah. Man. He was a riding academy uh, instructor. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, the guy who ran the riding academy in Lyon, France, back in the 1760s. And um, he said, you know what? There's not a lot of, like, formal science-based education in caring for horses. And I think that's problematic. So I'm going to write a little book in 1750 um, talking about how to care for horses. But also I'm going to kind of, like, go to uh, Louis XV and his court and say, guys, this is really actually very important. Horses have an enormous impact on our lives. And um, I really think that we should start setting up horse veterinary schools. And Louis XV said, okay, I'm with you, man. Let's let's try it. Yeah. He said, you want to you keep hunting foxes? And King Louis said, sure. And he said, well, your horses aren't doing so hot. Mm-hmm. And there's no school to, to make them feel better. So why don't you fund this? And they funded it, I believe, sort of temporarily at first. And I guess it proved to be, you know, at least successful enough to really put it on the books for good. Uh, right. I think what, what really changed things was uh, something came along called uh, The Render Pest, which totally sounds like some folk horror movie Ari Aster thing. All right. Uh, but The Render Pest uh, was the cattle plague, and it hit Europe in a big, big way. And we're talking to the tune of about 200 million cattle dying over the course of, what is that, like 50-something years. In Europe alone. Yeah, in Europe. So that that really made King Louis sit up and take notice. Uh, so that short-term grant uh, become uh, became permanent state support. Uh, and this Bourgelot guy, was uh, he was a really big deal because he started a couple of schools. And it's, it is what these schools did, but it was also these schools then sprouting other schools and uh-huh. the people that he instructed then going on and teaching others. It was really just the beginning of a movement, which was right. vet school. And it was good that they started that, um, that, that that was kind of like the ground zero for veterinary medicine because they seemed to actually know what they were talking about. They used science-based, science-backed best practices. Um, they, it wasn't just a lot of hokum, you know? Like mm-hmm. They actually said, does this actually work? Let's test it out. Um, and so it did spread, I think, uh, at first to Vienna in 1767, about six years after the Lyon School was set yeah. up. Uh, London, 1791, Berlin, 1792. And then, you know, for those of us in America, you're like, an American? Well, it wasn't about a little less than 100 years later before America really started to get serious about veterinary medicine. Yeah, it was uh, almost as if the American colonists um, set things up and they were like, all right, we're going to kind of do things like they were done a hundred years ago mm-hmm. in Europe where we came from um, that like we, you know, they cared about horses and cattle just in the same way uh, that, you know, as far as depending on them for all the things that livestock provided, but mm-hmm. that was not, it was just way less advanced. They were still doing the, the let's feed them this and see what happens. And, and again, this is a new country. So they were, there was a bit of a learning curve, I think, as far as, um, climate and like what's available to eat and stuff like that. But it wasn't so different that they had to kind of go back a hundred years, I don't think. 
They were still using Gervais Markham's book. Right. <laughs> well, they were, actually, right? They, they definitely were, yeah. The thing I saw it described as, so in the United States in particular, it was just basically taken for granted that if you own a horse or you own livestock, you, the horse owner, the farmer, has the knowledge to care for and keep those those animals healthy. That, that it's your responsibility, that it was just viewed as, you know, um, veterinary medicine was just viewed as another chore around yeah. the farm. It was not something that you needed book learning for. You didn't need some pencil neck from the city to come tell you how to do it right. Um, it was just up to the farmer, the horse owner, to, to care for their animal. Yeah, and I've got something kind of staggering here uh, oh, that Livia dug up. Um, that horses, of course, here we go again. <laughs> Man, that's so hard to not say. Mm -hmm. uh, horses were the main animal that everyone was concerned with, but uh, there was an analysis of advertisements for veterinary remedies found in Tennessee newspapers from 1849 to 1900 and found mm -hmm. that more than half were, from, uh, were for horses. And then following in order were cows, chickens, hogs, and sheep. Mm -hmm. And what's astounding to me is that means that someone did an analysis of veterinary remedy advertisements in Tennessee newspapers from 1849 say, to 1900. Yeah, you got me with that. I was going to be like, you, so you found that astounding, huh? Who but did that? really pulled it out at the end. Some people who had too much funding. Do you think Livia did it? No, I saw the paper, and I don't remember uh, who wrote it. Oh, man. I was so hoping she'd be like, guys, I went over and above this time. It was me. <laughs> Um, so the thing that, um, oh, what was his name? Claude uh, Bourgelot, the guy yeah. who founded the Lyon Veterinary Academy that kind of spawned so many others. The thing that he warned Louis XV about, like, hey, man, you really depend on horses a lot. And we need to keep them safe. That kind of came and bit America, horse bit America in the rear end. Mm -hmm. um, because by the 1870s, there was a horse um, plague, yeah. kind of like cattle rinderpest. Which, by the way, Chuck, I just want to say this. Do you know Rinderpest is one of two diseases considered eradicated from Earth, the other being smallpox? Oh, really? Yeah. It's almost kind of like how smallpox devastated humanity. Mm -hmm. Rinderpest devastated cattle for very a very, very long time. And so we just said, we're done with this. And so in 2011, it was declared eradicated. They should decide that about all disease. I agree. <laughs> They're like, we're still making our mind up about the other ones. We're done with this one. Let's get rid of it. Okay. So there was a horse plague that came around, uh, at least some sort of epidemic that really kind of spread throughout uh, the United States. And um, it showed America like, hey, you guys really depend on horses because the horses all called in sick to work. Mm -hmm. They did. And this is a time when uh, there was, I think what they responded with was, hey, we need to care for our horses but it wasn't necessarily medical care still it was mm -hmm. you know again let's see if we can get their diet better maybe if these horses are really sick we should clean their stables out more maybe we should you know change their blankets out and give them clean blankets things like that but it still wasn't and you know they had sort of the home remedies and stuff they were still doing but it right. still wasn't this i guess what would have been at the time advanced medical veterinary care happening no, and as a result, because they hadn't really figured this out yet, those horses that were sick, um, the the fire, the Great Fire of Boston in 1872 burned as badly as it did because the fire department basically had to show up on foot 
There weren't any horses available. They were all sick. And also from that um, outbreak in the 1870s, the ASPCA um, developed and was actually given policing powers in New York City because they would go around and inspect horses out on the street to see if they were sick because if you were an owner and you were making your horse work sick, Uh you were in big trouble, especially with the ASPCA. Because you could make other horses sick or you were just doing the wrong thing? Both. Okay. Yeah. That's good to know. Uh, And again, this is in America. They were lagging behind such that they were still uh, using like, you know, charms and rituals and spells and things in some (laughs) kind of rural parts of America at first. It's kind of funny to think about, but this is this is what it looked like at the time. Chuck, tell them how to cure bots, which is a parasitic fly infection that horses can get. Well, if you're talking about the one from the 1820 book, Mm -hmm. this is from a healer, I guess a horse healer. In Pennsylvania, uh, in bots is that uh, parasitic infection. Right. Uh, here's what you would do. <laughs> I know why you're making me read this. Uh, you would, quote, stroke the horse down with a hand three times. Mm-hmm. So far, so good. Uh, lead it about three times, holding its head toward the sun, saying, mm-hmm. The Holy One saith, Joseph passed over a field, and there he found three small worms, the one being black, another being brown, and the third being red. Thou shalt die and be dead. <laughs> Can you worked. imagine passing your neighbor <laughs> while they were doing this? Wouldn't you just be like, we need to get locks for our doors? Yeah, they just stroked that horse down three times. Yep. So moving on, Chuck. Finally, in the United States... Uh, medicine itself wasn't really professionalized until the 1840s. Um, but around the same time, kind of like you were saying in, I think it was Great Britain, mm-hmm. where the anatomists and the veterinarians started kind of working side by side or co-evolving, a similar thing happened in the United States. Again, just a hundred years later, it's so weird that it took that long. Yeah, And then finally, um, it was in large part thanks to the... Um, the Civil War, too, that gave people a great appreciation of, of the, the importance of the horse and how much we needed to care for him. The thing is, we're still totally focused on the horse, not just in mm-hmm. the United States, but around the world. If you are a veterinarian, all you do is horses, maybe cows, maybe chickens if you have a huge gambling problem and are in debt. Or sheep. That's, but that's about it. Yeah. yeah. But really, the big focus is on horses. Still just horses, guys. I promise we're going to get to doggies and kitties at some point. The last two minutes. Uh, A big step uh, forward was in 1863, Mm -hmm. uh, there were some veterinary surgeons from seven different states who met in New York City and said, had some drinks and said, have you seen what's going on out there in the country? Like they're stroking horses down and like they're doing witches spells and it's just the Stone Age. We need to get it together. And so they said, bully to that. And they established uh, the U.S. Veterinary Medical Association, which would become the American Veterinary uh, Veterinary Medical Association, and said, you know what we should do? We'll let anyone in uh, who is who says they are a practicing veterinarian uh, that has or even a student that has at least three years experience. Mm-hmm. And they could get in if they can practice, uh, if they could pass an oral exam, mm-hmm. uh, like that you got good teeth. That's what I actually thought when I first read that, by the way. <laughs> oh, really? 
for for two seconds, I was like, "What does that got to do with that?" <laughs> and I went, oh, what a dummy! Uh, if they passed an oral exam and could provide documentation or even just testimonials that said, you know, these are my qualifications. Plus, and, they had to walk around the room with a stack of books <laughs> on their heads without dumping them over. That's right. Very important work. Uh, and Josiah H. Uh, Stickney was mm. a graduate of Harvard Medical School, was the very first president of, uh, of the, I guess at the time, the U.S. VMA. And that's, uh, that's, that's legit, you know, Harvard Medical School. You're right there Checks in lockstep with, uh, with medical doctors at the time. Right. So that became the American Veterinary Medical Association, which is still around today. And this was the 1860s, right? 1863, yeah. And then Congress even said, hey, get this. We want to get in on the act. If you are a um, if you're in the cavalry, uh, you have to have at least one farrier in a regiment. And that farrier, if you're going to take care of horses, you have to have a degree from a yeah. veterinary college. We're going to start taking this seriously from now on, everybody. OK, no more messing around. No more hex craft or anything like that. <laughs> We're done with that. We're going to get into science now. Yeah. Quit stroking down that horse and go to school. Uh, A lot of uh, veterinary institutions (laughs) sprang out from this, Uh and these were for-profit places. The the quality (laughs) was very uneven. Are you still laughing about that? Yeah, that got me. The quality was very uneven at these schools, and most of them were in big cities, of course, still focusing on those horses. But then something weird happened. Uh, The automobile came along. Horses were kind of kicked to the curb, literally. And off the streets, and all of a sudden, a lot of these uh, veterinary schools closed up shop. They were like, well, that's it. That's that's our practice. What else is there to do? And by the end of the 1920s, they were all but gone. Yes, but there was a an, an astounding stroke of good luck for the veterinarians <laughs> who, were, who were around at the time. Okay? Yeah. And that is that— um, Up to that point, like if you treated anything but horses, you were on a descending hierarchy, kind of like I was talking about before. And one thing you just did not do was treat dogs. If you're a veterinarian, you did not treat dogs. And veterinarians were totally fine with that until the horse kind of lost its importance like you were talking about. And so veterinarians kind of started to look around and they realized that in Great Britain, there was a woman named Maria Dickin who had uh, established the People's Dispensary for Sick Animals of the Poor. Amazing. Which gave, yes, free treatment to any sick animals anybody brought in. It was a real hit among the poor and cheapskate pet owners at the time. And um, they were doing it without any veterinary training whatsoever. They were just using trial and error. And just from that kind of experience, they actually got really good at treating dogs. And so veterinarians said, well, we don't have horses to practice on anymore. We're going to take over dogs and we're going to go after the PDSA and basically make them work with us. All right. I feel like that's a great uh, little cliffhanger there. Mm-hmm. We're finally at doggies. We're still not at kitties yet, everybody. <laughs> Believe it or not, they, they took even a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. But we'll get to that right after this. Who hasn't heard names like Achilles or Odysseus, Cassandra, Medusa... 
But how much do you know about them from the ancient world? Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the podcast bringing the ancient sources to life. Greek myth and history is timeless, and unless you've been living under a rock, you have seen just how true that is today. But there is so much more to these characters and stories than what pop culture can do justice. I'm Liv Albert, the host of Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, and every week I bring you stories from the ancient world, both mythological and historical, to breathe new life into these thousands of years old stories. I'm also regularly joined by some of the most brilliant names in the field of archaeology and ancient history, authors of your favorite retellings from today, and everyone in between. Join me as I dive into the wild world of the ancient Greeks and their stories. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. So where we left off was you introduced a woman named Maria Dickin, who mm -hmm. uh, did great work kind of founding the the idea of uh, what what do you call them? Like a like dispensaries? A, no, like a, like, a, you know, like a free animal clinic. Yeah. A free clinic for animals. Yeah. A free clinic for animals. I feel like there's a word that I can't 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 land on. Uh, it's free clinic. No, that's not it. Okay. But but that is it. So it's fine. But anyway, laboratory. She did <laughs> no. She did great work. Uh, they, I think they had uh, a patient load at one point. Infirmary. Of, 
No. <laughs> okay, well, then I'm out of ideas. You're Sorry. Uh, of over 400,000, um, like, treatments per year. That's a lot. That's a lot. But like you said, the, the people that studied and schooled to be vets all of a sudden found their coffers empty because all the horses were just standing around mm-hmm. doing nothing now. And uh, a very wealthy woman left 50,000 pounds to the PDSA, and the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons said, well, wait a minute, we, we should have some of that money uh, because you're giving all this money to this place that's not even accredited with doctors. Mm-hmm. And that's what kind of got them together. And they started um, hiring doctors either kind of permanently as full-time staff or farming out their uh, cases to these professional doctors. Right. And so veterinary medicine kind of transitioned at the same time uh, that uh, people in the West in Great Britain and in, in the United States as well were starting to kind of change how they viewed dogs. Like their dogs were brought in from the outside. They mm-hmm. became members of the family. Um, and so as such, people were willing to spend money on their medical treatment and they would go to medical professionals and the veterinary practitioners were waiting there with open arms and um, bills in hand. That's right. Uh, so we move on to our second hero of the story. If you're a cat person, mm-hmm. you need to know this man's name. And it was uh, Lewis or Louie. Do you know which one? Let's go with Lewis. Lewis? No, J- no, no, no. I'm oh, sorry. I, I realize now it's got to be Louie. <laughs> it is Louie because his name is Louie Camuti. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Louis J. Camuti was uh, in, a veterinary a specialist in New York City. Mm-hmm. And Louis Camuti said, you know what? A cat <laughs> saved my life when I was a kid. There was a house fire, and I guess this cat uh, went over to him and went, fire, <laughs> and woke Kamudi up. And this is his story. Right. And he said, so you know what I'm going to do? I am going to dedicate my life to caring for the cats of the greater New York area. Mm-hmm. And everyone went, what, you, what, you mean cats? You mean these things we those things we kick off the sidewalk? Because they're annoying us. And he went, cats, the thing that saved my life. Right. And um, he actually, his daughter credited him with elevating cats to the status they enjoy now. Again, it's like a beloved member of the family. I love it. Where before, if you kept cats around, it was probably because you had a a rat problem. Mm -hmm. The cats provided a function. They were like, you know, working animals in a lot of ways. And all of a sudden, they're pets. Um, and he wrote a book called All My Patients Are Under the Bed. That's so darn cute. It is super cute. Um, so Louis Camuti, second uh, second hero. And then there's another hero that comes up in a second. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I'm going to give everybody your name. Her name is Lila Miller. Yeah. And she is known as the mother of shelter medicine. And thanks to her in the 1970s and people working in the decades leading up to that, um, we went from the wholesale slaughter of dogs and cats, unwanted dogs and cats, Mm -hmm. to essentially no-kill shelters that kill just a tiny fraction, euthanize a tiny fraction of the dogs and cats that come come in to their their doors. Shelter, that was the word I was looking for. No. But but it wasn't quite right. No, an infirmary works better, (laughs) a clinic works better, laboratory works better than shelter. All of them work better. Yeah. Sometimes you're looking for the wrong word, you know? Yeah, I guess so. You just got to own it. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> we, we don't have to get too in-depth here, but 
suffice to say, like well into the 1970s, the way we got rid of um, stray dogs and stray cats was reprehensible and terrible. I have to say one thing, though. I, I agree. We don't need to get into it. But um, there were so you know how like there's just like it's literally open season on some animals that there's too much of still today. They call them cullings or whatever. Uh-huh. It was like that in the cities, but with dogs and cats. Yeah. But it, it makes you think like, OK, well, everybody back then was super heartless. Not true. There were sociopathic sickos who would become those people who who like killed their quota. Oh my and gosh. there weren't quotas, by the way. But they would round these these dogs and cats up and carry them off in the wagon. Those wagons would be frequently attacked uh, and the drivers like beaten and the cats and dogs inside freed by just average residents in a city when they saw these wagons go past. Wow. Even back then. So there were like I think most people still felt about you know, animals like dogs and cats mm-hmm. like we do today, just they didn't keep them in their house, but they still saw them as these living, sentient beings that are worthwhile and shouldn't just be, you know, murdered for yeah. no good reason by some, the local sicko. Totally. Wow. Yeah. Uh, all right. So back to Lila Miller. I'm glad you said that because that's, that's a pretty good uh, factoid. I'm not, I'm not for uh, taking matters in your own hands and like street mm-hmm. violence, but mm-hmm. I don't know. In that case, free the dogs. And I'm glad you said that because I couldn't tell if you were bored with my story or not. No, not at all. Uh, it reminds me of a T-shirt Emily has that's uh, it's a very popular shirt. It says, be kind to animals or I'll kill you. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's a great T-shirt. Uh, so Lila Miller, she was uh, one of the very first uh, African-American woman to uh, graduate from Cornell's Veterinary College. Mm-hmm. She was the one, like you said, she came along, said, we can do better. Uh, at the time, even if, you know, I mean, I guess they were mostly kill shelters at the time. Um, but even if maybe you were one of the few that wasn't, it was still probably like a warehouse uh, that didn't have great care for animals. It just was not like what it is today. And we have Lila Miller to thank for that. Yeah, she um, to, came for up changing with protocols. That. Yeah, for sure. Um, she, she, like, she basically came into the field and said, this is all low-hanging fruit. We're doing basically nothing to help improve the lot of these animals. So mm-hmm. let's start doing things like setting up adoption programs, making sure they get vaccinated, uh, making sure they get spayed and neutered. That was a, a fairly uh, recent thing from the 60s or the 70s, mm-hmm. maybe. Um Oh, no, I'm sorry. From the, It started in the 30s, but culturally it wasn't a really right. big thing until the 60s or the 70s, thanks to people like Lila Miller and Bob Barker. No joke. Yeah. Um, and and as a result, because of these, these protocols that she came up with and just the complete change in attitude she brought to animal shelters, um, the rates of euthanasia just plummeted in cities around the country. Like, if you want to be grossed out, Go look at euthanasia rates of cities like Los Angeles or New York or Boston in like 1960. Yeah. Um, it's just mind boggling. And now it's down to just a, a small fraction of what it used to be because so many of those dogs are adopted out because of these change of protocols, thanks to Lila Miller and others like her. Yeah. And I mean, just so much has changed since then uh, as the dog and cat population has grown and even more and more pets have have come inside. I mean, you think like, yeah, people started having pets a while ago and uh, and it's been fairly static. But 
uh, get this stat, between 88, 88 and 2017, the number of pet dogs in the U.S. grew by 50%. Mm-hmm. And by 2018, almost two-thirds of household pets owned at least, or uh, households owned at least one pet. And those pets sometimes had pets. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and just the, you know, I, you and I grew up in the 70s and 80s. I'm a little bit older, but I, I even remember being a kid and like very shamefully, I mean, we didn't live in the country, but we lived, you know, we lived in the woods on a couple of acres in suburban mm-hmm. Atlanta. And mm-hmm. like my parents grew up in, in not rural Tennessee, but you know, they didn't grow up in big cities in the 19, like 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. So like I, we didn't take our animals to the vet, like we had cats that came and went. They weren't mm-hmm. inside. We had dogs that were out in an outdoor. And that's not to say, like, you know, if, if people have a very nice outdoor enclosure for their dog and that works for them and the dog is safe, that's a personal choice. I think all dogs should be in bed with you, personally. For sure. But I'm not going to, like, um, I'm not shaming people that might have an outdoor dog or cat as long as they're really, really cared for. It's not what I do. But back then, like, our animals never came inside. If a cat happened to run inside, it was like, get them out of here. <laughs> right. And I wasn't saying that. I was like, oh, the cat's inside. The cat's inside. Mm-hmm. Right. But like the uh, the notion of, uh, and this was like even veterinary care, like if they really, really, really needed something, our animals would go to the vet. And this is like a shameful admission. This isn't, I'm not trying to like out my family, but this is kind of how it was is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And, but the notion of, taking your animals in once a year for a checkup right was just people didn't do that kind of thing back then no it's a really relatively new thing and it's it, it evolved in lockstep with the amount of money that the middle class and yeah. upwards were willing to pay to to take care of their pets and the amount of pets uh, that's part of it too and also i believe that veterinarians have um, come up with new and amazing ways to to bill you that you can spend money on your pets. <laughs> oh, God bless them. We'd spend and a lot of money there. For sure. And then also there's been um, a lot more specialization as a result. So you don't have to go to the same vet for your dog's, you know, rabies shot and to treat their, you know, tumor or something like that. Like there's there's pet oncologists, neurologists, epidemiologists. Um, it's It's really something. But because veterinarians... They, they don't learn, essentially, as a profession. They went from being completely with all their eggs in the horse basket to totally abandoning the horse and putting it all in the pet basket. Mm-hmm. And as a result, there's a, there's a real shortage of rural veterinarians who are large animal vets that know how to work on a horse, that, that know how to work on a cow. Um, and I, I'm guessing that that's going to be something that will have to be addressed eventually. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's really amazing how things have changed in the past, like, you know, 30, 40 years in the Definitely. United States. Uh, yeah. And I want to shout out my vet. Can I do that? Uh, yes. Well, I'm going to shout out Avondale Veterinary Hospital because they're great. Yes. Uh, we followed our doctor, Stacy Stacy is her name. Mm-hmm. That's uh, an awesome name. When she left our old vet uh, to go uh, to a new practice. We followed her there because she's so great. So big ups to Dr. Stacy and Dr. Graf and Michelle and Kim and Leona and Kat and Abby and Jordan and Jennifer and Carrie and everyone else who helps out there. Uh, They're awesome. And I just, you know, more and more people are becoming, and, you know, we should mention another reason 
that there's more veterinary care is more people are interested in becoming vets. Um, right. That, that job has really exploded over the last 20 or 30 years. Yeah, for sure. It's good work. Um, I guess I'll shout out Moe's Vet. We're actually torn right now because Moe's Vet left Dr. Janosko, who's awesome. She went to another practice, but we love the practice that Moe's at so much. We're like hemming and hawing about what oh, to do. Oh, that's tough. See, we were ready to leave. We were getting a little frustrated with other parks, parts of the old practice. Mm-hmm. So when Dr. Stacy left, we were like, oh, great. This is perfect. That's awesome. That's, so a, that's we, a tough decision for you. It is. The compromise we came up with, we're just going to get, we're going to double up on everything that Mo gets done. <laughs> just go to both? Yeah. One right <laughs> after the other. Oh, man. Doubling your bet, Bill. I love it. I have a little Mo anecdote, if you don't mind me sharing. I would love to hear about little Mo Mo. So Yumi told me just this morning that Mo has a new, um, so you said dogs should sleep in bed with you. Mo definitely sleeps in bed with us. Uh-huh. Um, and Mo's developed a new habit where <laughs> uh, Yumi will be spooning Mo. Uh-huh. And Mo will decide that she wants to get on the other side now. But rather mm-hmm. than just get up and crawl over Yumi and get on the other side, she wants Yumi to spoon her, but on the other side. Uh-huh. So she'll tap Yumi <laughs> until flip. she wakes up. To flip. <laughs> yeah, and gets that she needs to roll over now because Mo wants to spoon on this side. Oh, boy. It's the Isn't best. Yeah. Mo runs us, for sure. Well, you know, at least, at least somebody's in charge. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, you got anything else? I got nothing else. Okay, well, if you want to know more about veterinarians, go get friendly with a veterinarian. They'll tell you what you want to know. Uh, And since I said that, it's time for listener mail. All right, so I can't put it off any longer. We're going to go through some of the favorite tangents of 2022 from uh, from Ian Bowers of Sandusky, Ohio. Uh, Ian put together our tangents and non sequiturs list of 2021. Mm-hmm. And we said, hey, if you want to keep doing this, we'll read it. And so Ian said, great. So here we go. I'm going to go through these pretty quick. But these are these are a fun walk down memory lane for us because we, we forget these jokes all the time. Uh, the Mystery of the Toynbee Tiles, Josh's love of the Alfred Hitchcock Presents, the Three Detectives books. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Mystery of Coal episode, uh, stainless steel pickup trucks at the Atlanta Olympics and how <laughs> you still haven't seen them. Yeah, that one's popped up a few times. Uh, Waterland acknowledgments from May 10th. Uh, a Beastie Boys dad joke leads Chuck and Josh to reciting their favorite Beastie Boys line. And Chuck <laughs> reveals he accidentally taught his daughter an inappropriate Beastie Boys lyric when she was too young. <laughs> did I tell you off the air? No, I don't believe you did. All right, so we're going to take a short break, and I'll let you know right <laughs> now, and then we'll be back in one second. Oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's Josh's literal reaction to what I just told him. I'm so sorry, everybody. <laughs> what a tease. I can't tell everybody. Sorry. Uh, oh, interestingly, cats, invasive species. Mm-hmm. Uh, long discussion right at the top of Josh and Chuck's favorite newspaper cartoon strips. Sure. Of course. Uh, May 31st, the scintillating world of interest rates. Discussion of the movie The Green Knight. Uh, leading Josh and Chuck agreeing that A24 has a flawless streak of movie releases. Rockin'. We're going to go see The Whale in the theater soon, and I don't want to know anything about it other than <laughs> A24 released it. Uh, talk to me after you see it. Um, okay. June 7th, Freedom of the Press, a very intricate, descriptive, three-minute discussion mm-hmm. of how Josh and Chuck would ride a horse over a cliff. Oh, I remember this one. 
wearing uh, individual parachutes. <laughs> I remember that too. We landed safely, if I remember correctly. We did. I like that one. That bugs some people though. Mm-hmm. Um, let me see. July 5th, ultra processed foods. Josh eating hot wings while wearing finger condoms. <laughs> and uh, the director Chuck worked for, he would eat Cheetos wearing surgical gloves as a bit. That was uh, mm-hmm. Tom Schiller. Mm-hmm. Uh, Supernovae, uh, July 19th. Um, discussion of which Britpop bands are cool and which ones weren't. Uh, Planet Sterilizing Event should be our Britpop album name, is what I said. Mm-hmm. And you said Zombie Star is the name of our Britpop band. Those two still work really well. I agree. Uh, Silly String, uh, We Josh brings up a video of a dog that got into a gorilla enclosure at a zoo. Oh, yeah, that poor dog. I remember that. Side note, one of Josh's looser episodes, very amusing. Okay. What was it again? Silly String? Yeah. I, I can't believe I didn't take Silly String seriously. <laughs> uh, short Stuff, The Burner Street Hoax, Chuck's daughter's love of the songs, Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Mm-hmm. In her brief, only girls want to have fun and boys do not. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's still ongoing, by the way. Is it really? Yeah. Uh, September 6th, about Mallory and Mount Everest. Um, oh, uh, not a tangent, but Chuck casually mentioned the rope trauma. Josh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Josh brushed bust past it without asking what happened to Chuck's dismay. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that point, Chuck refused. Chuck, he should say, became a big baby and refused <laughs> to tell the story. <laughs> Of what happened, despite Josh asking repeatedly, Chuck said he'll take it to his grave. Classic SYSK moment. Uh, How do license plates work? uh, Chuck's incredulity, sorry, Mm. that Josh didn't know what uh, serif about sans serif. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, He should say Chuck was a big jerk about the fact that Josh didn't know that. That was the one you apologized about later, right? I did. I felt bad about that. Don't feel bad. No one ever wants to be told, what, you know that? (laughs) <laughs> Man, you just made me feel bad all over again. Uh, and then finally, from just recently, November 30th, on Goosebumps, uh, whether all or just some of the members of the band Boston went to school at MIT. <laughs> did we ever figure that out? Uh, they definitely did not, but I didn't oh, okay. look it up. I just knew that. Oh, well, that was very nice of you to just <laughs> gently walk past it later on. Uh, thanks, Ian Bowers. Once again, this is a lot of fun. We'll read them again next year. Very nice. Thanks, Ian. Thank you for um, completing that very stressful assignment. We would love it if you did it again. Okay? Agreed. If you want to be like Ian, you can't. Ian's one of a kind. But you can get in touch with us and send us an email of your own. Wrap it up, spank it on the bottom, and send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. 
We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionized over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cozy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.